Chapter Nineteen of the Empire of Russia from the Remotest Periods to the Present Time. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jean Bascom. The Empire of Russia from the Remotest Periods to the Present Time by John S. C. Abbott. Chapter Nineteen. Peter the Great from sixteen ninety seven to seventeen o two young russians sent to foreign countries the czar decides upon a tour of observation his plan of travel anecdote peter's mode of life in holland characteristic anecdotes the presentation of the ambassador the czar visits england life at deptford illustrious foreigners engaged in his service Peter visits Vienna. The game of landlord. Insurrection in Moscow. Return of the Tsar and measures of severity. War with Sweden. Disastrous defeat of Narva. Efforts to secure the shores of the Baltic. Designs upon the Black Sea. It was a source of mortification to the Tsar that he was dependent upon foreigners for the construction of his ships. He accordingly sent sixty young Russians to the seaports of Venice and Leghorn in Italy to acquire the art of shipbuilding, and to learn scientific and practical navigation. Soon after this he sent forty more to Holland for the same purpose. He sent also a large number of young men to Germany to learn the military discipline of that warlike people. He now adopted the extraordinary resolve of travelling himself, incognito, through most of the countries of Europe that he might see how they were governed, and might become acquainted with the progress they had made in the arts and sciences. In this European tour he decided to omit Spain, because the arts there were but little cultivated, and France, because he disliked the pompous ceremonials of the court of Louis the Fourteenth. His plan of travel was as ingenious as it was odd. An extraordinary embassage was sent by him as Emperor of Russia to all the leading courts of Europe. These ambassadors received minute instructions, and were fitted out for their expedition with splendor which should add to the renown of the Russian monarchy. Peter followed in the retinue of this embassage as a private gentleman of wealth, with the servants suitable for his station. Three nobles of the highest dignity were selected as ambassadors. Their retinue consisted of four secretaries, twelve gentlemen, two pages for each ambassador, and a company of fifty of the royal guard. The whole embassage embraced two hundred persons. The Tsar was lost to view in this crowd. He reserved for himself one valet de chambre, one servant in livery, and a dwarf. It was, says Voltaire, a thing unparalleled in history, either ancient or modern, for a sovereign of five-and-twenty years of age to withdraw from his kingdoms only to learn the art of government. The regency during his absence was entrusted to two of the lords in whom he reposed confidence, who were to consult in cases of importance with the rest of the nobility. General Gordon, the Scotch officer, was placed in command of four thousand of the royal troops, to secure the peace of the capital. The ambassadors commenced their journey in April, 1697. Passing directly west from Moscow to Novgorod, they thence traversed the province of Livonia until they reached Riga, at the mouth of the Duina. Peter was anxious to examine the important fortifications of this place, but the governor peremptorily forbade it. Riga then belonged to Sweden. P. 
Peter did not forget the affront. Continuing their journey, they arrived at Königsberg, the capital of the feeble electorate of Brandenburg, which has since grown into the kingdom of Prussia. The elector, an ambitious man, who subsequently took the title of king, received them with an extravagant display of splendor. At one of the Bacchanalian feasts given on the occasion, the bad and good qualities of Peter were very conspicuously displayed. Heated with wine, and provoked by a remark made by Lafort, who was one of his ambassadors, he drew his sword and called upon Lafort to defend himself. The ambassador humbly bowed, folded his hands upon his breast, and said, "'Far be it from me. Rather, let me perish by the hand of my master.' The Tsar, enraged and intoxicated, raised his arm to strike, when one of the retinue seized the uplifted hand and averted the blow. Peter immediately recovered his self-possession, and sheathing his sword, said to his ambassador, "'I ask your pardon. It is my great desire to reform my subjects, and yet I am ashamed to confess that I am unable to reform myself.' From Königsberg they continued their route to Berlin, and thence to Hamburg, near the mouth of the Elbe, which was, even then, an important maritime town. They then turned their steps towards Amsterdam. As soon as they reached Emmerich on the Rhine, the Tsar, impatient of the slow progress of the embassage, forsook his companions, and hiring a small boat, sailed down the Rhine and proceeded to Amsterdam, reaching that city fifteen days before the embassy. He flew through the city, says one of the analysts of those days, like lightning, and proceeded to a small but active seaport town on the coast, Zandam. The first person they saw here was a man fishing from a small skiff, at a short distance from the shore. The Tsar, who was dressed like a common Dutch skipper, in a red jacket and white linen trousers, hailed the man and engaged lodgings of him, consisting of two small rooms with a loft over them and an adjoining shed. Strangely enough, this man, whose name was Kist, had been in Russia working as a smith, and he knew the Tsar. He was strictly enjoined on no account to let it be known who his lodger was. A group soon gathered around the strangers with many questions. Peter told them that they were carpenters and laborers from a foreign country in search of work, but no one believed this, for the attendants of the Tsar still wore the rich robes which constituted the costume of Russia. With sympathy as beautiful as it is rare, Peter called upon several families of ship carpenters who had worked for him and with him at Archangel, and to some of these families he gave valuable presents, which he said that the Tsar of Russia had sent to them. He clothed himself, and ordered his companions to clothe themselves in the ordinary dress of the dockyard, and purchasing carpenter's tools they all went vigorously to work. The next day was the Sabbath. The arrival of these strangers, so peculiar in aspect and conduct, was noised abroad, and when Peter awoke in the morning he was greatly annoyed by finding a large crowd assembled before his door. Indeed, the rumor of the Russian embassage, and that the Tsar himself was to accompany it, had already reached Amsterdam, and it was shrewdly suspected that these strangers were in some way connected with the expected arrival of the ambassadors. One of the barbers in Amsterdam had received from a ship carpenter and archangel a portrait of the Tsar, which had been for some time hanging in his shop. He was with the crowd around the door. The moment his eye rested on Peter, he exclaimed with astonishment, "'That is the Tsar!' His form, features, and character were all so marked that he could not easily be mistaken. No further efforts were made at concealment, though Peter was often very much annoyed by the crowds who followed his footsteps and watched all his actions. He was persuaded to change his lodgings to more suitable apartments, though he still wore his workman's dress and toiled in the shipyard with energy, and also with skill which no one could surpass. 
the extraordinary rapidity of his motions astonished and amused the dutch such running jumping and clamouring over the shipping they said we never witnessed before to the patriarch in moscow he wrote i am living in obedience to the commands of god which were spoken to father adam in the sweat of thy brow shalt thou eat thy bread very many anecdotes are related of peter during this portion of his life which though they may be apocryphal are very characteristic of his eccentric nature at one time he visited a celebrated iron manufactory and forged himself several bars of iron directing his companions to assist him in the capacity of journeyman blacksmiths upon the bars he forged he put his own mark and then he demanded of muller the proprietor payment for his work at the same rate he paid other workmen having received eighteen altins he said looking at the patched shoes on his feet this will serve me to buy a pair of shoes of which i stand in great need i have earned them well by the sweat of my brow with hammer and anvil when the ambassadors entered amsterdam peter thought it proper to take a part in the procession which was arranged in the highest style of magnificence the three ambassadors rode first followed by a long train of carriages with servants in rich livery on foot the czar dressed as a private gentleman was in one of the last carriages in the train of his ambassadors the eyes of the populace searched for him in vain from this fete he returned eagerly to his work with saw hammer and adze at zandam he persisted in living like the rest of the workmen rising early building his own fire and often cooking his own meals one of the inhabitants of zandam thus describes his appearance at that time the czar is very tall and robust quick and nimble of foot dexterous and rapid in all his actions his face is plump and round fierce in his look with brown eyebrows and short curly hair of a brownish colour he is quick in his gait swinging his arms and holding in one of them a cane the dutch were so much interested in him that a regular diary was kept in zandam of all he said and did those who were in daily intercourse with him preserved a memorandum of all that occurred he was generally called by the name of master peter while hard at work in the shipyard he received intelligence of troubles in poland the renowned king john sobieski died in sixteen ninety six the electors were divided in the choice of a successor augustus the second elector of saxony by means of bribes and his army obtained the vote but there was great dissatisfaction and a large party of the nation rallied around the prince of conti the rival candidate peter learning these facts immediately sent word from his carpenter's shop to augustus offering to send an army of thirty thousand men to his assistance he frequently went from zandam to amsterdam to attend the anatomical lectures of the celebrated Rouche. his thirst for knowledge appeared to be universal and insatiable he even performed himself several surgical operations he also studied natural philosophy under witzen most minds would have been bewildered by such a multiplicity of employments but his mental organization was of that peculiar class which grasps and retains all within its reach he worked at the forge in the rope walks at the sawing mill and in the manufactures for wire drawing making paper and extracting oil while at zandam peter finished a sixty-gun ship upon which he had worked diligently from the laying of the keel as the russians then had no harbor in the baltic this ship was sent to archangel on the shores of the white sea peter also engaged a large number of french refugees and swiss and german artists to enter his service and sent them to moscow whenever he found a mechanic whose work testified to superior skill he would secure him at almost any price and send him to moscow 
to geography he devoted great attention and even then devised the plan of uniting the caspian and the black sea by a ship canal early in january sixteen ninety eight peter having passed nine months at zandam left for the hague king william the third sent his yacht to the hague to convey the czar to england with a convoy of two ships of war peter left the hague on the eighteenth of january and arrived in london on the twenty first though he attempted here no secrecy as to his rank he requested to be treated only as a private gentleman a large mansion was engaged for him near the royal navy yard at deptford a small town upon the thames about four miles from london the london postman one of the leading metropolitan journals of that day thus announces this extraordinary visit the czar of muscovy desiring to raise the glory of his nation and avenge the christians of all the injuries they have received from the turks has abrogated the wild manners of his predecessors and having concluded from the behaviour of his engineers and officers who were sent him by the elector of brandenburg that the western nations of europe understood the art of war better than others he resolved to take a journey thither and not wholly to rely upon the relations which his ambassadors might give him and at the same time to send a great number of his nobility into those parts through which he did not intend to travel that he might have a complete idea of the affairs of europe and enrich his subjects with the arts of all other christian nations and as navigation is the most useful invention that ever was yet found out he seems to have chosen it as his own part in the general inquiry he is about his design is certainly very noble and discovers the greatness of his genius but the model he has proposed himself to imitate is a convincing proof of his extraordinary judgment for what other prince in the world was a fitter pattern for the great emperor of muscovy than william the third king of great britain in london and deptford peter followed essentially the same mode of life which he had adopted in amsterdam there was not a single article belonging to a ship from the casting of a cannon to the making of cables to which he did not devote special attention he also devoted some time to watchmaking a number of english artificers and also several literary and scientific gentlemen from england were taken into his service he made arrangements with a distinguished scotch geometrician and two mathematicians from christchurch hospital to remove to moscow who laid the foundation in russia of the marine academy to astronomy the calculation of eclipses and the laws of gravitation he devoted much thought guided by the most scientific men england could then produce perry an english engineer was sent to russia to survey a route for a ship canal from the ocean to the caspian and from the caspian to the black sea a company of merchants paid the czar seventy five thousand dollars for permission to import tobacco into russia the sale of this narcotic had heretofore been discouraged in russia by the church as demoralizing in its tendency and inducing untidy habits peter was occasionally induced to attend the theatre but he had no relish for that amusement he visited the various churches and observed the mode of conducting religious worship by the several sects before leaving england the czar was entertained by king william with the spectacle of a sham sea-fight in this scene peter was in his element and in the excess of his delight he declared that an english admiral must be a happier man than even in the czar of russia his britannic majesty made his guest also a present of a beautiful yacht called the royal transport in this vessel peter returned to holland in may sixteen ninety eight having passed four months in england he took with him quite a colony of emigrants consisting of three captains of men of war twenty-five captains of merchant ships forty lieutenants thirty pilots thirty surgeons two hundred and fifty gunners 
and three hundred artificers. These men from Holland sailed in the royal transport to Archangel, from whence they were sent to different places where their services were needed. The officers whom the Tsar sent to Italy also led back to Russia many artists from that country. From Holland the Emperor of Russia with his suite repaired to Vienna to observe the military discipline of the Germans, who had then the reputation of being the best soldiers in Europe. He also wished to enter into a closer alliance with the Austrian court as his natural ally against the Turks. Peter, however, insisted upon laying aside all the ceremonials of royalty, and, as a private person, held an interview with the Emperor Leopold. Nothing of a special interest occurred during the brief residence of Peter in Vienna. The Emperor of Germany paid the Tsar every possible attention which could be conferred upon one who had the strongest reluctance to be gazed upon or to take part in any parade. For the amusement of the Tsar, the Emperor revived the ancient game of landlord. The royal game is as follows. The Emperor is landlord, the Empress landlady, the heir apparent to the throne, the archdukes and archduchesses are generally their assistants. They entertain people of all nations, dressed after the most ancient fashion of their respective countries. The invited guests draw lots for tickets, on each of which is written the name or nation of the character they are to represent. One is a Chinese Mandarin, another a Persian Mirza, another a Roman senator. A queen perhaps represents a dairymaid or a nursery girl. A king or prince represents a miller, a peasant or a soldier. Characteristic amusements are introduced. The landlord and landlady with their family wait upon the table. On this occasion the emperor's eldest son, Joseph, who was the heir apparent, represented with the countess of Tron the ancient Egyptians. His brother, the Archduke Charles, and the Countess of Walstein appeared as Flemings in the reign of Charles V. His sister Mary and Count Fran were Tartars. Josephine, another daughter of Leopold, with the Count of Warkla, represented Persians. Marianne, a third daughter, and Prince Maximilian of Hanover were North Holland peasants. Peter presented himself as a Friesland boar a character, we regret to say, which the Tsar could personify without making the slightest change in his usual habits, for Peter was quite a stranger to the graces of the polished gentleman. This game seems to have been quite a favourite in the Austrian court. Maria Antoinette introduced it to Versailles. The tourist is still shown the dairy where that unhappy queen made butter and cheese, the mill where Louis the Sixteenth ground his grist, and the mimic village tavern where the king and queen of france as landlord and landlady received their guests peter was just leaving vienna to go to venice when he received intelligence that a rebellion had broken out in moscow his ambitious sister sophia who had been placed with a shaven head in the cloisters of a monastery took advantage of the czar's absence to make another attempt to regain the crown she represented that the nation was in danger of being overrun with foreigners, that their ancient customs would all be abolished, and that their religion would be subverted. She involved several of the clergy in her plans, and a band of eight thousand insurgents were assembled, who commenced their march towards Moscow, hoping to rouse the metropolis to unite with them. General Gordon, whom Peter had left in command of the Royal Guard, met them, and a battle ensued in which a large number of the insurgents were slain, and the rest were taken prisoners and conducted to the capital. Hearing these tidings, Peter abandoned all plans for visiting Italy, and set out impetuously for Moscow, and arrived at the Kremlin before it was known that he had left Germany. Peter was a rough, stern man, and he determined to punish the abettors of this rebellion with severity, which should appall all the discontented. 
General Gordon in the battle had slain three thousand of the insurgents, and had taken five thousand captive. These prisoners he had punished, decimating them by lot and hanging every tenth man. Peter rewarded magnificently the royal guard, and then commenced the terrible chastisement of all who were judged guilty of sympathizing in the conspiracy. Some were broken on the wheel and then beheaded. Others were hung in chains on gibbets near the gates of the city and left frozen as solid as marble to swing in the wind through the long months of winter. Stone monuments were erected on which were engraved the names, the crimes, and the punishment of the rebels. A large number were banished to Siberia, to Astrakhan, and to the shores of the Sea of Azov. The entire corps of the Strelitzis was abolished, and their place supplied by the new guard marshaled and disciplined on the model of the German troops. The long and cumbersome robes which had been in fashion were exchanged for a uniform better adapted for rapid motion. The sons of the nobles were compelled to serve in the ranks as common soldiers before they could be promoted to officers. Many of the young nobles were sent to the Tsar's fleet in the Sea of Azov to serve their apprenticeship for the navy. The revenue of the empire had thus far been raised by the payment of a stipulated sum from each noble according to his amount of land. The noble collected this sum from his vassals or bondmen, but they often failed of paying in the amount demanded. Peter took now the collection of the revenue into his own hands, appointing officers for that purpose. Reforms in the church he also undertook. The patriarch Adrian, who was the pope of the Greek church, dying about this time, Peter declared that he should have no successor. Virtually assuming the authority of the head of the church, he gathered the immense revenues of the patriarchal see into the royal treasury. Though professedly entrusting the government of the church to the bishops, he controlled them with despotism which could brook no opposition. Anxious to promote the population of his vast empire, so sparsely inhabited, he caused a decree to be issued that all the clergy of every grade should be married, and that, whenever one of the clergy lost a wife, his clerical functions should cease until he obtained another. Regarding the monastic vow, which consigned young men and young women to a life of indolence in the cloister, as alike injurious to morality and to the interests of the state, he forbade any one from taking that vow until after the age of fifty had been passed. This salutary regulation has since his time been repealed. The year in Russia had for ages commenced with the first of September. Peter ordered that, in conformity with the custom in the rest of Europe, the year should commence with the first of January. This alteration took place in the year 1700, and was celebrated with the most imposing solemnities. The national dress of the Russians was a long flowing robe which required no skill in cutting or making. Razors were also scarce, and every man wore his beard. The Tsar ordered long robes and beards to be laid aside. No man was admitted to the palace without a neatly shaven face. Throughout the empire a penalty was imposed upon anyone who persisted in wearing his beard. A smooth face thus became in Russia and has continued to the present day the badge of culture and refinement. Peter also introduced social parties, to which ladies with their daughters were invited, dressed in the fashions of southern Europe. Heretofore, whenever a Russian addressed the Tsar, he always said, Your slave begs, etc. Peter abolished this word, and ordered subject to be used instead. Public inns were established on the highways, and relays of horses for the convenience of travellers. Conscious of the power of splendor to awe the public mind, he added very considerably to the magnificence of his court, and instituted an order of knighthood. 
in all these measures peter wielded the energies of an unrelenting despotism and yet of a despotism which was constantly devoted not to his own personal aggrandizement but to the welfare of his country the czar established his great shipyard at voronese on the don from which place he could float his ships down to the sea of azov hoping to establish there a fleet which would soon give him the command of the black sea in march sixteen ninety nine he had thirty-six ships launched and rigged carrying each from thirty to sixty guns and there were then twenty more ships on the stocks there were also either finished or in process of construction eighteen large galleys one hundred small brigantines seven bomb ships and four fire ships at the same time peter was directing his attention to the volga and the caspian and still more vigorously to the baltic upon whose shores he had succeeded in obtaining a foothold and now the kingdom of sweden came with a rush into the political arena poland had ceded to sweden nearly the whole of livonia the livonians were very much dissatisfied with the administration of the government under charles the eleventh and sent a deputation to stockholm to present respectful remonstrances the indignant king consigned all of the deputation consisting of eight gentlemen to prison and condemned the leader john patgall to an ignominious death patgall escaped from prison and hastening to poland urged the new sovereign augustus to reconquer the province of livonia which poland had lost assuring him the livonians would aid with all their energies to throw off the swedish yoke patgall hastened from poland to moscow and urged peter to unite with augustus in a war against sweden assuring him that thus he could easily regain the provinces of ingria and karelia which sweden had wrested from his ancestors denmark also under its new sovereign frederick the fourth was induced to enter into the alliance with russia and poland against sweden just at that time charles the eleventh died and his son charles the twelfth a young man of eighteen ascended the throne the youth and inexperience of the new monarch encouraged the allies in the hope that they might make an easy conquest charles the twelfth a man of indomitable of maniacal energy and who speedily infused into his soldiers his own spirit came down upon denmark like northern wolves into southern flocks and herds in less than six weeks the war was terminated and the danes thoroughly humbled then with his fleet of thirty sail of the line and a vast number of transports he crossed the baltic entered the gulf of finland and marching over ice and snow encountered the russians at narva a small town about eighty miles southwest of the present site of the city of st petersburg the russians were drawn up eighty thousand strong behind entrenchments lined with one hundred and forty-five pieces of artillery charles the twelfth had but nine thousand men taking advantage of one of the fiercest of wintry storms which blew directly into the faces of the russians smothering them with the snow and sleet mingled with smoke and which concealed both the numbers and the movements of the swedes charles the twelfth hurled his battalions with such impetuosity upon the foe that in less than an hour the camp was taken by storm one of the most awful routs known in the annals of war ensued the swedes toiled to utter exhaustion in cutting down the flying fugitives thirty thousand russians perished on that bloody field nearly all of the remainder were taken captive with all their artillery disarmed and with uncovered heads thirty thousand of these prisoners defiled before the victorious king peter the day before this disastrous battle had left the entrenchments at narva to go to novgorod ostensibly to hasten forward the march of some reinforcements when peter was informed of the annihilation of his army he replied with characteristic coolness i know very well that the swedes will have the advantage of us for a considerable time but they will teach us at length to beat them 
he immediately collected the fragments of his army at novgorod and repairing to moscow issued orders for ascertained proportions of the bells of the church and convents throughout the empire to be cast into cannon and mortars in a few months one hundred pieces of cannon for sieges and forty-two field pieces with twelve mortars and thirteen howitzers were sent to the army which was rapidly being rendezvoused at novgorod charles the twelfth having struck this terrific blow left the czar to recover as best he could and turned his attention to poland resolved to hurl augustus from the throne peter himself hurried to poland to encourage augustus to the most vigorous prosecution of the war promising to send him speedily twenty thousand troops in the midst of these disasters and turmoil the czar continued to prosecute his own plans for the internal improvement of his empire and commenced the vast enterprise of digging a canal which should unite the waters of the baltic with the caspian first by connecting the don with the volga and then by connecting the don with the duina which empties into the baltic near riga war continued to rage very fiercely for many months between the swedes on one side and russia and poland on the other charles the twelfth gaining almost constant victories the Swedes so signally proved their superiority in these conflicts that when on one occasion eight thousand Russians repulsed four thousand Swedes, the Tsar said, Well, we have at last beaten the Swedes, when we were two to one against them. We shall by and by be able to face them man to man. In these conflicts it was the constant aim of Peter to get a foothold upon the shores of the Baltic, that he might open to his empire the advantages of commerce. He launched a large fleet upon Lake Ladoga, a large inland sea, which, by the river Neva, connects with the gulf of finland the fleets of sweden penetrated these remote waters and for months their solitudes resounded with the roar of naval conflicts we cannot refrain from recording the heroic conduct of colonel slippenbuck the swedish commander of the town of notberg on this lake the town was invested by a large russian army for a month the russians battered the town night and day until it presented the aspect of a pile of ruins and the garrison was reduced to one hundred men yet so indomitable was this little band that standing in the breaches they extorted honourable terms of capitulation from their conqueror they would not surrender but on condition of being allowed to send for two swedish officers who should examine their remaining means of defence and inform their master charles the twelfth that it was impossible for them to any longer preserve the town peter was a man of too strong sense to be elated and vainglorious in view of such success he knew full well that Charles the Twelfth, since the Battle of Narva, looked with utter contempt upon the Russian soldiers, and he was himself fully conscious of the vast superiority of the Swedish troops. But while Charles the Twelfth, with a monarch's energies, was battering down fortresses and cutting to pieces the armies of Poland, Peter had gained several victories over small detachments of Swedish troops left in Russia. To inspire his soldiers with more confidence, he ordered a very magnificent celebration of these victories in Moscow. It was one of the most gorgeous fete days the metropolis had ever witnessed. The Swedish banners taken in several conflicts on sea and land were borne in front of the procession, while all the prisoners taken in the campaign were marched in humiliation in the train of the victors. While thus employed, the stern, indefatigable Tsar was pressing forward the building of his fleet on the dawn for the conquest of the Black Sea, and was unwearied in his endeavours to promote the elevation of his still semi-barbaric realms by the introduction of the sciences, the arts, the manufactures, and the social refinements of southern Europe. Footnote 11. Postman number 417. Footnote 12. 
these are the numbers as accurately as they can now be ascertained by the most careful sifting of the contradictory accounts the forces of the russians have been variously estimated at from forty thousand to one hundred thousand that the swedes had but nine thousand is admitted on all hands End of chapter 19